Uh, one thing I wanted to just end on. Um, I'm going to have a hard time even reading today because I'm still not seeing words very clearly. But let's start in the 12th verse and go down possibly through at least the 26th and maybe the 28th. 12th chapter of John and the 12th verse. All right, this is the beginning of, of Passover. It's the greatest festival of the Jew. It's the one where, of all the other festivals, every adult male Jew within 20 miles was um, commanded to attend, and everyone all over the world desired to attend this festival more than any other. And it's still said today that a, a good Jew today, when he comes to the time of Passover, will say as he celebrates this, will say, today, you know, I celebrate in Huntsville. Next year, hopefully, Jerusalem. And they would pray a year ahead of time that the Lord would somehow provide for them, that they would be able to, to go to the land of, of Palestine and to Jerusalem in order to celebrate this greatest of all their festivals. So on this day, it was at that time when Jesus comes back to, to the area of Jerusalem. And he's staying during these days. This is the last week of his life. And he's staying during these days most of the time in Bethany, probably at the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And just to give you a little insight into some of the things that are going to happen in the week that we have, we have half the book of John devoted to the last week of the life of Christ. And so I think from that we can see how important it's going to be for us to understand that final climactic experience that he had on earth. So he, on the Sunday, this day that we're going to start out, John doesn't give a lot of details about what happened. He doesn't give all the details that some of the other synoptic writers gave about how he came in on this Sunday, the triumphant entry. Uh, I prefer to call it the royal entry because triumphant by the very word means that he came in as a victor, having already won the victory. And we know that the victory was not won until the cross. And that was the latter part of that week. So the royal entry, he was the king of kings. He was the king of righteousness. He was the prince of peace when he came in that day on a donkey. But to come in on a donkey, and we'll go into that a little bit more later, to come in on a horse would mean the victory's already won. I'm the triumphant king. And many times after they had won a victory, they would come back through this golden gate and when they would come through, all the hosannas and all the palm branches waving, all these things would take place, but it would always be to say, you've won the battle. Now, the battle is out ahead. The battle is a few days ahead. So let's call it the royal entry into the city of Jerusalem. And on that first day, on that Sunday, when he came into the city, uh, on the donkey that had been prearranged, and it was one of those times where I recognized the fact that Jesus was not a spur-of-the-moment person. You know, he still works in advance of things. He arranges many things and has things in great order. He doesn't just, just absolutely leave everything to circumstance. And this is one of those cases where we see that he had even made provision for a man to have a, a donkey that had never been ridden. And that in itself was an unusual thing, that that donkey had never been ridden by man, because a donkey was, um, he was a prized animal at that time. He wasn't like what we think of a donkey now as being a stupid, dumb beast. They, they revered the donkey back then, and he was a beast of kings back at this time. So when Jesus rode in on a donkey, he rode in as a king riding in on the beast of kings. But that he had never been ridden or never been broken was an unusual thing. It was as that, that he responded to the Creator, to his own Creator that day, as he responded by allowing him to get on his back and ride into that city in peace without any kind of, of uh, bucking or anything like that. 
All right, so the first day when he got into the city with all the palm branches waving and all the people shouting their hosannas, he went into the temple area, and they, all this crowd, this mass crowd of people, certainly at that time, this was the minute they'd been waiting for, that minute they'd waited for for generations. And that he, they really were beginning to think, maybe this, this indeed is the Messiah. And when he comes in, when he comes into the city, riding on this donkey with all the people surrounding him, and when he got into the city, he would declare himself to be the Messiah. And there he would set up the millennial kingdom right then and there, uh, a kingdom that would uh, get rid of the Roman government altogether and one that would allow the Jews for the first time in ages to live in peace. Right, and when he comes in that day, and, and you can imagine, just put yourself into their thoughts, if you thought that was what he was going to do, and he came in and he went into the temple area and said nothing, said nothing, didn't speak, didn't do anything that, he, that they thought he was supposed to do, turned around, went back out the gate, back over the Mount of Olives, back over to Bethany, what would you have thought? Would you have been disappointed if you had longed? All your life, and all your parents' life, and all your grandparents' life, there had been this longing for the king, for, for God to send a Messiah, the promised Messiah, and for him to deliver his people. If this one seemed to be there that day, and he came in and didn't say anything, and turned around and walked back out, you would have um, been just brokenhearted, and even to the point of being really... Um, enraged over it. And so some of the people that day, some of the people waving those palm branches and some of the people shouting Hosanna to the king, son of David, some of those people were surely the ones within a week, just a matter of days, who were hollering crucify him. And I think we can be safe in believing that some of those people, not all of them, but some of them were the same ones in the crowd shouting kill him crucifying. So I want you to get that picture, that picture in your mind of, of just how much the Lord had to endure in the way of rejection, even rejection by some people who at one time were shouting praises to him, would turn around within the next minute and shout, kill him. All right, so the second day, he went back out that first day, and he came back in the second day. And this day, he went into the temple. And according to the other Gospels, we see that that was the day he cleansed the temple. John records the cleansing of the temple in the beginning. But John's purpose, as we've said over and over again, was never to put things in chronological order, but rather to teach spiritual lessons all the way from beginning to end. And so the things that he laid out in the beginning of the Gospel of John were the things God sent his son to do. And one of the things was to cleanse the worship experience, to cleanse the temple. And so he gets us right off at the beginning, understanding that this is one of the missions, a part of the mission, a part of the purpose of the Son of God was to cleanse the, uh, the temple and the religious experience of the Jew that had been so profaned by this time. This, the, the, this was Monday. On Tuesday, he came back in. At the end of Monday, he left again, left the city again. On Tuesday, he came back into the city, and this day, he taught again. He taught some of the final discourses that people were to hear in his earthly life. And on Wednesday, we don't have anything recorded. You have to just glean probably that Tuesday night after he had taught, probably was the night that they had the, uh, the supper account that we had last week, you know, the... Uh, the account where Martha was busy serving and Mary poured out the precious oil onto his head and onto his feet and wiped with her hair from his feet. And so we saw probably last week what happened on that Tuesday night. All right, on Wednesday we don't have anything recorded um, in the life that last few days of Christ, but we do, um, we can almost assume 
and here again we go assuming, that's all you can do, read between lines, we can almost believe that he took that day to once again take those chosen few to himself. And we know the necessity of that because it's not but a couple of days before he says to them, just stay awake, just stay awake and pray so that you can be prepared for what's going to happen. And they didn't. After three years of being with Jesus, you would think, after three years of being one of those close twelve, right with him every minute, you would think that you would have learned so much that you would have almost been thinking like he thought and acting like he acted and reacting like he reacted, but they didn't. And so that last Wednesday, he probably spent that time uh, with those chosen twelve and, and maybe with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus or the very closest people to him. And on Thursday, we know this is the day that the Garden of Gethsemane experience took place. And on the Thursday evening, that when they came and arrested him and Judas betrayed him, and we, we can glean from the other gospel accounts that after the Tuesday night evening meal, when, when Jesus reprimanded Judas for being so ugly to Mary about wasting this money, wasting this oil, <coughs> that this was the thing that triggered and think the last thing that it, it took for him to... He was already probably one of the ones disappointed because Jesus hadn't done what he thought he was going to do. Even the disciples thought he was going to set up a messianic kingdom right then. And so Judas couldn't take any more, and he goes out probably at that time and makes the arrangements for the betrayal of Christ. And then on Friday, of course, we come to the crucifixion. So these are things, this is just an outline, are things you can expect in the last few chapters, the last 10 or 11 chapters of the book of John. All these will be included in those. All right, so this is that, that first day, this Sunday now. Um, the next day, the great body of pilgrims who had come to the festival, hearing that Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem, took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, and Hosanna means save now. Save now. This was the consuming thought in each of their minds was that he would deliver them now. Not spiritual salvation. That's not what they were thinking about. Save us now from the Romans. Save us now. Blessings on him who comes in the name of the Lord. God bless the King of Israel, our son of David. And then he begins to quote from Zechariah 9, 9, a messianic claim that they had longed to be fulfilled. Fear no more, daughter of Zion. See your king is coming. <coughs> mounted on an ass's colt, uh, the Prince of Peace coming into the city and in, in through that golden gate. And let me just share one thing with you about the golden gate. Uh, it's been blocked. It's, it's a solid, solid, thick gate now. And after this, no one has come through it. But the scripture says, and according to everything we know through the Old Testament, we're seeing still fulfillment of the scripture. Everything that had been prophesied all through the Old Testament came to pass in the person of Jesus. And so if, if we're logical at all, it, it only takes a logical mind to say, okay, if everything that had been prophesied about him had come to pass during his earthly life, then after his death and resurrection and ascension back to the Father, what makes us think that everything that's been prophesied uh, about his coming again is not going to happen? It would take a stupid person to say this is not going to happen. And the scripture says that he will come again and he'll come back through that same gate. But this time, he won't come back on a donkey. This time, he'll come back like the warrior. He'll come back on the horse. And he'll come back through to establish that messianic kingdom they thought should have happened that day. So look forward to that coming because that's going to be the greatest day that we've ever experienced. More than we ever can even dream of happening is going to happen that day when we are caught up to be with him and when he comes back in through that gate. You know, while we were in Jerusalem, uh, our, our guide told us that there had been many attempts made to blast away that gate. 
Uh, Sam? One king, and I can't remember who it was. Um, you know, an Arabian king or something, a niece was telling us, had gotten almost there. He was going to attack Jerusalem. He was going to come through there and, and show that, that that was not not too far away. He had a heart attack, and the forces had to leave. His, all his armies had to leave. So it will never, no one will ever come through that gate until it comes to pass as it's recorded in the pages of Scripture. These are things, if we had nothing else to strengthen us in our Christian faith, if we had nothing else... To me, it's the most strengthening thing in the world to see that nobody can do away with the Word of God. You know, nobody can undo. If He's declared something to happen, it's going to happen, and it's going to happen just exactly like He said it was going to happen. If it's a bold, declarative statement that He's made, nobody can do anything with it. It, it just will come to pass. So look forward to that day. All right, so... Now get the picture. We have him coming from Bethany, and we have crowds of people following him. And then according to some of the other Gospels, we see people from Jerusalem coming out to meet him. They've heard, and we've already seen uh, uh, in the last chapter, that they said, where is he? Is he coming? And they began to look for him. So there's all this buzzing around the city. And, and by the way, it's, it's told that there might have been like uh, maybe... 25, uh, 2,500,000 people at one of these festivals, uh, Passover festivals. And you'd have to know how small Jerusalem is to understand what a crowd, what a mob kind of scene that was. Um, and they get this by one of the, um, they took a census and they, they said that there were 256,500 lambs slain at one of these. There were 10 people to each lamb that were slain. And so they came up with, with this 2,500,000 number. And if you can get the mob mass hysteria, you might see a little more clearly what happened even uh, at this time with the shouting hosannas and then shortly thereafter when they began to shout crucifying. But anyway... That's not, not so important either. I think the important thing is to remember that at this time, it looked like he was being accepted. It looked like he was going to be accepted finally because people coming toward him from Jerusalem, people following him from Bethany, closing in on him, uh, it, it, shouting Hosanna, shouting praises. It looked like everything was coming up roses. It's a very short time now, a very short time before they turn on him. God bless the king of Israel. All right, we'll go through Zechariah 9, 9, this uh, special kind of Messiah they had been looking for. Um, have you ever thought about the act of courage that it took for Jesus to come in like that? Boldly. They'd already picked up stones on several occasions to stone him. They were laying in wait for him. They knew when he came in. He knew when he came in this was the end. And yet he didn't come in slipping through the crowd. He came in on a colt. He came in on an animal with all these people shouting who he was. He was the bravest, most courageous man who ever lived, barring none. So remember the courageous Jesus when you think sometimes of the way he's been depicted over the years as being an effeminate. You know, if, if you ever see statues and paintings and things of him, he looks like he's just the sissiest thing in the whole world. Uh, nowhere do you get any picture of anything short of a, a man's man. You know, a strong, courageous man above every man who ever lived. At the time, we're in verse 10, uh, no, verse 16. At the time, his disciples did not understand this, but after Jesus had been glorified, they remembered that this had been written about him and that this had happened to him. This was so typical of those people, uh, even the disciples, even the inner circle 
They didn't, and every time John talks about Jesus being glorified, he's talking about his crucifixion. So it says after Jesus had been glorified, after Jesus had been crucified, then these things began to be recalled to their memory. What they hadn't really heard, how many times do you sit and sit and you hear over and over, you hear some, some truth or some uh, principle taught or preached, and you hear it over and over and over again, and then years later something happens in your life and you begin to, to recall something that you heard way back years at that time. Now I understand. Now I see what it means. I, this was brought to my mind when... Um, um, Bertha Smith was at the prayer retreat that we had, the conference that weekend that we had, and I don't know how many years it had been since we have, we've been taught over and over again, you must crucify self in order to really live the Christian life victoriously. The big eye has got to be crucified before you can live in Christ, and over and over and over, this has been expounded, it's been preached, it's been taught, and we should know it by that time. But the numbers of people, the numbers of people who went that weekend and heard it like it was for the first time. And then you begin, you said, oh, they said, why have we not been told this? And you'd say to them, we have, we have. Don't you remember? Don't you remember this study? Don't you remember that sermon? And they would say, oh, yeah, yeah. Now I remember. But they didn't hear it at that time. <coughs> All right, here's an example. Huh? Here's an example of what happened here. Things that Jesus was telling them that they were going to need, that they needed even then, are being recalled to their memory only after he's crucified, only in the depths of despair where they're beginning to hear the words that he had spoken and see what they meant. All right, the people who were present when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead told what they had seen and heard. So there were many of those people that day and that crowd of people in Bethany when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. This greatest of all his earthly miracles as far as the physical life was concerned was performed that day. Many of those people who were there, that mourning group, who had seen and heard were in this crowd of people who followed him into Jerusalem that day. And when they came in, they began to tell, they began to share a personal witness at this point, what they had seen and what they had heard, what they knew for a fact about this man Jesus. All right, so they said, that's why the crowd went to meet him. See, there had been those who had been sharing. And so as a result, anytime you share Christ, there are always those who want to meet him. Anytime you share Christ, there's going to be somebody who wants to know him. All right, so this is what's happening then. That's why the crowd went to meet him. They had heard of this sign he had performed. The Pharisees said to one another, You see you're doing no good at all. Why, all the world, all the world has gone after him. It amazes me every time I come to these Pharisees or Sadducees and they open their mouth to say something, they never know what they're saying. It's the most amazing thing in the world. It was one of them who said, this man, it's better that this man die, you know, for his country. One man die for his country. They didn't understand that one man had to die, not only for the country, but the world. So see, they're expanding even now. Even the Pharisees are expanding. You see, the whole world, all the world, has gone after him. Of course, all the world had not gone after him, but all the world would be affected by this Son of God who had come into the world, not only to live, but to die and to be resurrected for the salvation of the world. We saw at the beginning of the book of John the spotless Lamb of God who had come to settle the sin question forever, to take away the sin of the world. 
of the world. So everybody's included in this. Not only the, the Jews who thought they were the chosen people and the only ones God was dealing with, but rather the whole world would be affected by what this man had done in his life and what would happen in his death and what would happen then in his resurrection. All right, so it's interesting to me right now it breaks and it goes to another scene. It's, it's for a reason, and we'll see it right after he says, the Pharisees, all the world has gone to him. Right after that, see, John didn't put things in chronological order. He saw that this was a time to insert the fact that the Greeks, some Greeks who were there, came to Philip. And then uh, Philip and Andrew took him to Jesus. Among those who went to uh, the worship of the festival were some Greeks. These were the first representatives of the wide world, of the world Jesus had come from. These were the first representatives of the whole world who came to Jesus at that time. So apparently they were, were there were many people who were not Jew, uh, Jews who were at these feast occasions. They were not uh, allowed any further than that outer court. But remember, that's where Jesus taught on the Tuesday. And so they may have even heard Jesus teach at different times. More than anything else in the Greek world, and remember John is writing to the Greeks. John's purpose in writing was that we might believe, but his specific group of people he was writing to were to the Greeks. And so he would naturally pick up on any Greeks who came to hear about Jesus. In the Greek world at that time, they, had, they would even have a God who was called the unknown God. In case you missed a God, we would have a statue erected to an unknown God. And so the Greeks had uh, many times probably been told over and over in their life about the Logos. Plato had told about the Word. Plato had, had spoken of they had heard about all these different gods but had never had any satisfaction in their own lives. And so here's a representative group of people from the outlying area who had come in knowing that nothing they had ever had before had ever satisfied. And so they, now they come into the Jewish festival. And remember, it's called, back in the Old Testament, it was called the Lord's Festival, God's Festival, God's Feast. And in the New Testament, it begins to be called the Jews' Feast. The Jews had taken it and done with it uh, totally contrary to what God intended it to be and had made nothing but an outward ritual out of it. And so when they came in and probably had been a part of this experience there, maybe they had seen in the Jews that that wasn't what they wanted. What they were doing there was not going to satisfy them. And surely by this time, they had heard of this man Jesus and that he could transform a life, that he could not only heal and perform miracles of all different types and sorts, but that he could minister to the total man and he could give you a life that was worth living, that he was the life. And so with this, and, and I don't think it's, it's doing any harm, I really believe this is what happened to those people. I think this is what built up to the day when they came to Philip. And why did they come to Philip? Philip and, and Andrew were two Greek names, and they were both from Bethsaida. And so probably if you were going to that group, you wouldn't have gone to, to James and John and Peter and all these Hebrew-named people. You would go to the Greek names, and you would feel like they would sympathize with you more and reach out to you in a warm kind of way because you'd have something in common. And so they went to Philip, and they told him they wanted to see Jesus. And listen to what they said, Sir, we would like to see Jesus. What does your translation say? Most of these are so near the same. We would see Jesus. This is the cry of their heart. We would see Jesus. Show us Jesus. And every time I come to that verse of Scripture, I'm reminded that people don't want to see me. People don't want to see the church, Whitesburg Baptist Church. People don't want to see an organization. People don't want to see anything but Jesus. And if we promote self, and we, if we promote church and institution, if we promote all of these things and we miss showing people Jesus, we are above all people the greatest failures. 
in all of the world. The cry from these men is the same cry today. Show us Jesus. Jesus is the only person who can come into my life and transform it and change it and give it meaning and purpose and vitality. Jesus is the only person who can do for me what I need doing for me, not only as far as salvation is concerned and forgiveness of sin, but as far as victory in this life. And so if we could come to the place, we would begin to approach everybody. And from every standpoint, if it's in a one-to-one witness, if it's in a classroom situation, a Bible teaching situation from the pulpit, if we would just always keep in my minds their cries, we would see Jesus. And the greatest compliment anybody can ever give a teacher, the greatest compliment anybody can ever give a preacher, is not to say to them, you are wonderful, you are great, that was, that was beautiful. But to say to them, we saw Jesus. Thank you. Thank you for showing us Jesus. That's the greatest compliment you can pay a teacher or a preacher or anybody sharing the gospel. We we showed you Jesus. Not only in word, but in deed, in life, in action. In every way, we showed Jesus. All right, so this is their cry. And what happens then? Philip went and told Andrew. And every time we find Andrew, he's bringing somebody to Jesus. If we don't have the... The best example in Andrew of a soul winner, I don't know where you'll ever find him, Andrew always seemed to be able to take somebody to Jesus and to know that that's where they needed to be. Take them to the foot of the cross. Take them to Jesus. Andrew, uh, is, is, from all that we know about him, is a very quiet person too. He's not a bold, uh, brash kind of Peter. He's the quiet witness who, who probably centered all his attention. Let me take you to somebody who can change your life. Let me show you Jesus. This is why right now we have something going on called Operation Andrew. If you wonder where, why we call it Operation Andrew, this is exactly what it is. It's for those of us to realize that we're the Andrews of today. We're the Andrews of today. And our greatest mission in this world, Jesus' greatest mission was to seek and save the lost. And our greatest mission as his followers is to seek and to save the lost, to reach out to anybody who comes across our path and show them Jesus, take them to Jesus, introduce them to Jesus, lead them to a place where they can receive him as their Lord and Savior, their personal Lord and Savior, and then not to stop there but to know that we still have a responsibility to show them Jesus and the way he operates in the life of the saved person, the Christian. And so uh, Philip, whether Philip felt a little insecure about him, we don't know. Sometimes it takes two. Sometimes it takes two personalities working together to help somebody come to Jesus. Philip and Andrew may have been a good soul-winning team. I don't know whether they work together all the time or not, but that doesn't matter either. Uh, What we have here is Philip apparently maybe having a little questioning in his mind about whether Jesus at that point, remember what all's going on, Remember, you know, all that he has on him and masses of crowds pressing in. And he may have thought Jesus doesn't have time for a Greek. You know, maybe Jesus doesn't have time for somebody on the outside. But one thing they knew at the end was that Jesus has time for everybody. You know, he never shuts a door in anybody's face. There's not a single person, man, woman, boy, or girl, and it does not matter what color your skin is or what your uh, socioeconomic status is. It doesn't matter. None of that matters. Jesus wants to see every single person come to himself. And so it's, I wondered why at this point he didn't go on and tell a little more about what happened. They took him, they took the Greeks to Jesus. But we don't have an answer right here as far as dialogue. 
between Jesus and Greek. You know Jesus well enough by now to know that, that this happened, that he interviewed them, and his teaching, what ha- follows this, what Jesus replied in the teaching would have been what he would have shared with the Greek. It would have been exactly the conversation he would have had. He would have told them the same things. It would be what he would tell his disciples. It would be what he told the Jew. It would be what he would tell us today. And so let's listen to what he says. Then Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. All the way through John's writings, remember, when the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, the hour has come for him to be crucified. To be glorified, according to John's writing, is to be crucified. So, all the way up to this point, we have seen occasion after occasion where he would say, they pick up stones to stone him, but his hour had not come, and so he slipped out in the crowd. His family said, go on down to Jerusalem, go on and do something, and he said, my hour has not come. And he would say this over and over again, don't make this public, my hour has not come. The time has not come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, now he says, the hour has come. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The time has come for the Son of Man to be um, crucified. We're reminded when Son of Man is used here of Daniel 7. And if you'll go back and read that sometimes, you'll see that when it gets to a certain point, it begins to talk about the Son of Man. It begins to make reference and prophesy as to Jesus and what was to happen in his life. After the four kingdoms had folded, the four world empires had folded, then it said the Son of Man would come and peace would reign eventually. All right, so they must have been thinking at this point of Daniel 7 and the things that they knew from that account. Then he says, in truth, in very truth, verily, 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 I say unto you, listen very carefully. Every time he says, verily, verily, in truth, and every time he says, pay attention up until this point, open your ears, the ears of your heart, and listen very carefully to what I'm going to say, because this is going to be life and death to you. This is going to be an essential for you to learn. I tell you, a grain of wheat remains a solitary grain until it falls in the ground and dies. But if it dies, it bears a rich harvest. So many things were included in a statement like that. That's the first thing, the first lesson he gave them of, of wheat as it falls into the ground. And any farmer of that day knew, I don't know anything about farming, but I know that if I have a package of seed uh, and I want to get some, some kind of flower in my flower garden, if I leave that package in that nice, beautiful little container that comes in that little package envelope, it comes in and I leave it in there and all the time I'm saying, oh, I hope I have some, I hope I have some lilies or whatever. I don't plant, I don't plant flowers. But if, if I did, I don't care how pretty that package was, they would never be flowers if I left them in the package. I would have to take the seed out put it into the ground, cover it over, water it, fertilize it, do all these things to it, but I would have to place it into the ground and cover it over. It would have to die before it would come back and bear any kind of thing. Curtis, that's the way it is on the farm, isn't it? You have to plant the seed in the ground before you get any corn, before you get anything out. Now, any, these were farm people at this, who lived in this area more than any other type of people. And so he gave them a lesson they could understand. And he's not only saying that he must die, He must be placed in the grave before he comes back to live again as the reigning one. He's not only saying that, although he's he's saying that. My hour has come. I'm going to be crucified. I must be placed in the grave in order for life to truly come to those of us who will believe and trust in that death and resurrection. He's saying that. He's also saying that life must, death must come uh, to this nation, as they had said a little bit earlier. When he dies, we must as individuals die also. 
And it, this is exactly what happens when you're born again. We must, uh, in a very real way, come to a place where we're really willing to die to self and trust in what Jesus has done. As we crucify ourselves, we allow the, the Holy Spirit of God to crucify our natural natures. Then we begin to live, not only in salvation, we die to self and live in Christ initially in salvation, but in the Christian life. This is what happens over and over and over. We are supposed to learn that the way to have victory day by day in your Christian life is only as you get up each, each day and you, of your own free volition, die to self. Place the big eye off the cross, put Christ on the cross, put the ring on the right finger, on the ring of the Holy Spirit in your life, allow him to tell you what to do. You do it as under his reign, as under his lordship. You do it. If you die to yourself daily, you will live in victory every day of your Christian life. And it does not matter what happens in the course of that day. If that day is committed to him, if, if self is gotten out of the way, then you will live on top of any situation that comes your way. This is a, a, as much a law of the spiritual nature as a grain of seed going into the ground and dying and coming back to life and bearing corn. It's the same principle. All right, so if you wonder why you don't have any victory in your Christian life, we go back to this principle he taught over and over again. Victory only comes to the one who is willing to die to self and live in Christ. Paul said, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but lives in me. Christ talks. He's the one who speaks through me. He's the one who, who loves through me. He's the one who shares through me. He's the one who does everything to me. Only so much as I'll allow him to do as I'm willing to die to self. I, the greatest principle you will ever learn is that one. And so this is one of the things he said, open your ears and hear. And if you don't have that victory, this is probably your reason. This is probably your problem. All right, then the second thing he says, the man who loves himself is lost. But he who hates himself in this world will be safe for eternal life. The man who loves himself is lost, but he who hates himself in this world will be safe for eternal life. I, I got to thinking about this. If you love your life so much, even this is at conversion, place of conversion. If you love yourself so much that it's explained to you that when you come to Christ, you make him not only your Savior but your Lord. And you are under his as a slave, as a bond slave. He tells you what to do, you do it. This is what he always laid out was necessary. We're the ones who made it easy. We're the ones through the years who've made it so easy that we tell somebody, just come on, walk down an aisle take a preacher's hand, join a church, get on a church roll, and then, you know, that's the end of it. That's never what he said. He always said that you must, as a person would hate himself, you must be willing to die to yourself, crucify yourself. You must be willing to give up your life in order to live the life that he has for you. And so what he's saying here, that the man who says, no, I'm not going to do that, I'm not, I like the way things are going. I like my life like it is. I love my selfish nature. I love my natural nature, and I'm not going to give it up for anybody. That person will never live. That person will never live. It's only when the person comes to the place where he says, everything is a colossal mess. I can do nothing with it. I can do absolutely nothing about my circumstances or about my life. I don't want it anymore. I give it up. I want you to have it. I hate it. I give it to you. You see, this is what he's teaching there. I want you to have it. I want to give it to you. This is the person who lives, not only now, and you live now. You live to the fullest right now, but you live forever. Uh, I was thinking about the fact that, you know, the person who loves his life is moved by two aims, by two aims. The person who really loves his life, selfishness and the desire for security. Now, you think about it. 
person who really loves himself better than anybody else in the world is so selfish and always thinking of what should be done for me, me, myself, and I, and always thinking of his security. It doesn't matter whether the, the cause of Christ is, is shoved forward you know, as we give unreservedly of our financial means, that doesn't matter. We want to take care of ourselves, so we want to keep all that locked up in some vault somewhere. You know, we want to be secure. We want to be secure. So you can see what, what can be brought out here over and over again. If there's one thing you find, you could probably, I could probably say to myself today, okay, now I want to live to be 100. Now, I don't know whether I'm going to live to be 100 or not. But if I would say that, I might could pile up in the bed and take every vitamin anybody has ever put up, just stuff my face with vitamins all day. I might never do anything that would wear myself out. You know, a little, little exercise here, a little exercise there. Eat only just what was, was right. Protect myself from any kind of virus so I never go outside. You know, I never expose myself to anybody. They might have some kind of germ or something. And I might take care of myself just so beautifully that I might, I might exist several years longer than I would like I'm living right today. But you exist. You don't live. You only live when you spend yourself for others. You only really truly live when you give yourself, not only to God, but you give yourself in service to Him and to others. And, well, we'll bring that out a little bit later. But it reminds me of a song I, I heard, and every time I hear it, I love it. I'd rather burn out than rust out any day. I'd rather burn out for the Lord and burn out for others than to rust out sitting on my rear end doing nothing but taking care of me, myself, and I. And sometimes we're told, when we, we're very active, we're told many times, oh, you know, you're going to run yourself to death, you're going to kill yourself, and that's not good. And I know sometimes we overdo it. But the most exciting thing in, that I can think of, the most exciting thing I can think of, is being used, being used of God in some way, not only for His glory, but to help other people, not only find Him initially, show Jesus to them, but to help in service to other people. That's life. And I may go about 10 years earlier. I don't know, but if I do, I'll go happy. I'd rather burn out than rust out any day. All right, so remember that. Now, the third thing he said, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, my servant will be. Whoever serves me will be honored by my Father. Now, we get right back into that service bit. You know, we, got, we had enough of that, I think, last week. And yet, if you study the Bible over and over and over, you're going to come to the place where he says, service, service. If you follow me, you serve me. If we're going to be like Christ, he spent his life on this earth serving, serving other people in service, doing the will of the Father, and in service to other people doing that. All right, so he says, if you're going to follow me, don't call yourself a follower of mine if there's no act of service in your life. If there's no act of service in our lives, we're not following Jesus. We're not following his example. We're not following what he told us to do if there's no place of service in our life. And here, we're not going to go into that all again. Was everybody here last week? Surely everybody was here. And you know that service is not just teaching or preaching or, or some voted on office. I should have brought out last week that, that like Shirley back there, Shirley Solid, finds her place of service. She's, boy, she's serving. She loves the Lord with everything in her. Now, she is the president of Christian Women's Club. And she serves actively, I mean, day after day in that capacity, and that's unto God. 
That's reaching a community for Christ, and I love that. And her service reaches out into our neighborhood, and I don't know how many times I've heard neighbors in our neighborhood not talking about me. I'm all wrapped up and busy and going all the time. It's Shirley who reaches out into our neighborhood in an act of service as unto God to the people in that neighborhood. And I love that. And the other day, I just have to throw this in. I have to tell you what happened. The Lord is working. Oh, if he doesn't, if he's going to work me right out of my pride one way or the other. If it kills me or kills him, I don't know what he's going to do. But surely, <laughs> the other day was on Wednesday. I think it was last Wednesday. There was a, a day of prayer all over the world for our world, for our leaders. And it was sponsored by Christian Women's Club. And I was, it was no Wednesday, and on Wednesday I usually clean up my house. And here, I, and when I clean up, I don't put any makeup on, and I don't comb my hair, and I keep my nightgown on. And it's a sight. Oh, if you ever saw a sight in your life, I must be the office looking thing that ever lived on, on the earth that, that day when Joy lived next door to me, and she knows. She's seen me. Now, nobody believes this unless you've seen it. And so surely it's about five minutes after 11. Now, everybody's praying right at that time. And if you don't pray at the same time, you, you're going to be out of, you know, we want everybody praying together. So Shirley called and said, there's another house. There was confusion. There's another house having prayer, and there's nobody here. So I'm calling two of my neighbors, you and Mary Alice, to come down and pray with me within the next few minutes. <laughs> and I said, Shirley, I have a nightgown on and my hair. No, my hair was in rollers. I had washed it. That's even worse. My hair, had, I'd washed it. It was in rollers. And I said, my hair is in rollers. No makeup, my nightgown on. She says, oh, that doesn't matter. It's just, just you and Mary Alice and me, and we're going to pray for our leaders. And right in a split second, I had to decide what God thought about the way I looked. And, and after the study of Job, I could just hear Satan and God talking. I... I I know he led us into that study of Job. I could just hear Satan saying, she's not going to go. She's, no way are you going to move her out of this house looking like that. I really could hear him. And I could hear God saying, I, I have confidence in her. I have confidence that she's not going to let a thing like that stand in her way. I prayed for a neighbor. I might not have, you know, but the world, that was a responsibility. And so I put on just some pants and a shirt. And I went out and Debbie said, Mother, you're not going anywhere looking like I said, yes, I am. I'm going to pray for the world. <laughs> I am going. I will not be defeated, and I will not disappoint a Christian neighbor and friend, you know, and let them think that pride is, is my downfall. So I did. So I just wanted you to know that. And praise the Lord. <laughs> when I walked in, Shirley looked at me like she wondered whether I was physically able to be there. You wouldn't believe Shirley, vouch for it, Shirley. Am I the oddest looking thing you've ever seen? It's true. I was too. We prayed. We immediately bowed our. We immediately bowed our heads and closed our eyes. And <laughs> well, uh, from now on, they taught me a lesson. Though I've been putting on that makeup early in the morning, <laughs> just in case somebody needs praying for during the course of that day. <laughs> Only by service comes greatness. This is what he's saying. First of all, he's saying, only by death comes life. Only by death comes life. You must die to self in order to live. Uh, the second thing he's saying, only by spending your life do you retain it. Only by giving of yourself do you get anything from life. And the third thing is, only by service comes greatness. And I got to thinking of the people you remember the most when you look back in your life, in your past. Who are the ones you remember with the most love? Just think about it for just a minute. Who are the ones you remember with the greatest love? 
And I did this to myself. And the ones that I kept coming to my mind were the ones who not only served God with everything they had, but served others, were the ones who reached out to others in such a loving, giving kind of way. These are the ones you remember. And I thought of people like Albert Schweitzer. You know, there have been a lot of people, a lot of scientists, and a lot of people who've gone to different countries. But that man gave of himself so totally and completely that he'll be remembered as long as there are people on this earth. They'll be talking about Albert Schweitzer because he gave so freely of himself. Uh, people like missionaries, for instance, they're, they're really great ones, our missionaries who go to foreign countries. And when you know of one like Bertha Smith who gives completely of herself, even at, at you know, taking away from the things that we think are part of life that are so important, like a home and a family, a husband and children, willing to give up everything to serve in another country like that. I'll always remember her. She's touched me in that kind of way because of, of her total giving of herself. You can think in your own families. When I look back at aunts and uncles and grandparents, it's the ones who I remember with love are the ones who served, who just gave of themselves so completely in, in service to, to the other members of the family. Now, you think of your families, and you begin to look back and remember the people who just mean more to you than anybody else. And this is basically what he's saying in there. Service, it's only through service that you find people who are the greats, the greats of the world, the greats of the Christian world. All right, now my soul, he says at the end, now my soul is in turmoil. And what am I to say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this that I came to this hour. Father, glorify thy name. And this is essentially what he was saying in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's just that at this point, he begins, John puts it very much like I really think. I've always felt like the situation really was. I've never really thought that, that Jesus wanted to be delivered from the pain of the cross. I think he had, he had experienced more pain excruciating pain, not only physical pain, but sometimes physical pain is not the thing that hurts the most. Sometimes the pain that hurts the heart, you know, somebody reaching out and just stabbing, hurting you, this is much more hurtful than anything else. So he'd experienced in those years tremendous hurt, and he knew as soon as this week was over he was going to go back to be with the Father. So I can't imagine him not wanting, I can't imagine him wanting to stay on this earth when he could go back to heaven's glories and be with his Father that what he was saying, his, his soul is beginning to be in such turmoil at this point. He knows all that's going to happen of the Jews, the people in that land, but of his own disciples at one point. I've always thought that must have broken his heart more than anything else that had happened that last period when they should have stood, if anybody stood by him, that they should have. So his soul is not only in turmoil over that, but in turmoil as he sees around him not only the mockery of a feast that was unto the Lord, but the mockery of the people shouting hosannas when they really didn't mean it and they were going to change and turn on him. All of these things were causing his, his soul to be in turmoil. And what John adds when he says, no, it was, it's not that I want to be delivered from this cross. The only thing he wanted to be delivered for, as I can see, was the deliverance from that first time of separation from the Father. He had never been separated spiritually from the Father. And there was going to come a time on that cross where for your sins and my sins, that one time in his life he would be totally separated from the Father. That's turmoil for the Son of God. We're so accustomed to being separated from God by our sin. 
you know, till it, we can't really get into the situation he was in here, but that must have caused his soul the greatest turmoil of all. But he says, it was for this hour I came into this world. This is what I came for. He did not come just to perform miracles. He didn't come just to be a great teacher. He didn't come to be a great rabbi. He didn't come to, to just minister to the needs of the ones around him, although he did all of those things. What he came for was for the hour that was to take place the end of this week, for the Son of God, the Lamb of God, to be sacrificed on the cross for our sins. So he says, he doesn't want to be delivered from that. That's why I came. That's why I came to this earth. I came to die. And Brother Mulkey brought this out Sunday so beautifully. He came. He was born to die. And that was, that's something we must grasp in order to understand the working of God in the sacrifice for our sins. So he said, Father, above everything else, glorify thy name. Above everything else, in and through these experiences ahead of mine, glorify your name. And his name was glorified, and we we're going to find next week the voice speaking from heaven. His name was glorified, not only in his birth. His name was glorified in his life. His name was glorified in the crucifixion. His name was glorified in the resurrection. And his name was glorified in the ascension. And his name is glorified as he intercedes by the right hand of the Father right now. And his name is truly going to be glorified that day when he comes again to gather us unto himself. And then his ultimate will will be a part of his plan finally. And so let's stop there, and that's a good plan.